instead of looking at law enforcement like they are going to be there to help you or be there to um, comfort you or be there to enforce and help different things you don't look at them like that anymore you look at them as being an enemy basically Welcome to Bridge the City, a podcast recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Our mission is to bridge together people, resources, and ideas that inspire Milwaukee to action, and my name is Sam Woods. And I'm Benjamin Rangel. And I am Kyle Heggie, and today, finally, after months of waiting, we've been getting emails, texts, phone calls, Pinterest invites, everything. I got a few homing pigeons sent to my home. Yes. Literally, carrier pigeons were flying around the city saying, we need the second part of the series on police community relations, and we're happy to announce it is finally here. Whereas our first episode focused on the theory of policing and the challenges officers face while on the job, our second episode will focus on giving greater context as to why some Milwaukeeans may be distrusting of the police in the first place. That's right, Ben. Today's episode will cover Collins versus the city of Milwaukee, a lawsuit brought against the city and police department by the ACLU of Wisconsin in 2017, as well as what a new police chief might change for policing strategy going forward and the media's role in covering cases of police brutality. And we really have a all-star lineup of guests that we're really proud to feature on the podcast. They include Ashley Luthern, a reporter on crime and breaking news with the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, Jarrett English, who is a senior field organizer with the ACLU of Wisconsin, and Destiny and Santana, two residents of Milwaukee, who tell us of their experiences with the Milwaukee police. This has been an episode long time in the making, so we're really happy to give you part two. Uh, Part three should be coming soon after. But without further ado, we bring you Destiny and Santana, two Milwaukeeans we met at a town hall meeting held by MPD. To get a sense about how they felt about the police in general, we asked what the first thing was that came to mind when they heard the words, the police. I'm Destiny, like when I hear police, it's always police brutality or something's wrong with the police, so every time I watch the news it's about police brutality, so that's what I think. Every time I get pulled over by the police when I'm with my dad or my grandpa, I will be like, oh, I'm just like, I'll be just scared and stuff because I don't, because what I see on the news, I don't want that to happen in real life. So I just try to like put my seatbelt on, you know, I try to do everything perfect and like if anything happens, make sure I have my mama speed dial and stuff. Like just stuff like that. I'm just trying to make sure like everything's okay, like nothing's like, because you know, if my dad, if his ID's like in the glove department and he reaches for it, the police might think it's a gun. So I would want to reach for his ID instead of him. So. Uh, my name is Santana. As soon as you say police, it instantly um, instantly triggers me to think about them pulling me over, or instantly triggers um, that that's the that's the instant trigger is them pulling me over. Right. All of the negativity that you're seeing, they they put on um, the media in detail and pictures and videos of these uh, police encounters that people are having with them. So it's not. It's not a police encounter that I've had personally. I think that it's almost like you having like some type of PTSD, like from seeing all of these things. And so then as soon as you get stopped, you instantly think that what happened to that person is going to happen to you. So I believe that anybody that's in this generation that watches the news is a product of police brutality because you're seeing all of these things. And if you are African-American or if you are brown skin or whatever, if you are a different ethnicity, you see a whole bunch of Caucasian um, police officers or white police officers, whatever you want to call it, um, brutalizing um, 
brown people. And when you see that and you're a brown person, um, then that makes you um, afraid, that makes you insecure. Instead of looking at law enforcement like they are going to be there to help you or be there to um, comfort you or be there to enforce and help different things, you don't look at them like that anymore. You look at them as being an enemy, basically. Is there anything that might change your perspective? Um, about the police. To me, if actual individual police officers, so it's, it's a difference when we come to these town meetings and you have uh, liaison police officers and police officers who uh, want to promote change um, there. That's one thing, but it's a completely different thing when you have just regular police officers pulling you over um, and they are not the liaisons. They are just regular police officers. Just as they are asking us to um, to recognize the trauma that they experience on a day-to-day -day in a workforce so when they pull us over, hey, don't make any sudden movements and don't be quick to do this and don't be quick to do that. We have to recognize that. Okay, we'll also recognize that when you asked me for my license and registration, the other day I got put over and the man asked me for my license and registration. And um, before I reached for it, I was... I. I panicked and put my hands up because when I tried to reach for it, I instantly thought, oh my God, he gonna think I'm reaching for something. And I instantly put my hands up and he started laughing. You know, and that's not funny. And it's not its not a joke that you think that, that I shouldn't have a reason to think that you were going to do something. I know that you are not the police officer that did these things, but you should still be accountable for people that wear that that wear your same uniform so if you pull me over and you are an authority figure you should know in your mind the bias that somebody could have towards you and you should want to comfort them before that even happens so when you pull me over and you ask for my um, license and registration and you see that I was fearful that would have been a moment to say um, you know it's okay like you know I know what's all going on in the media you know I just want your license and registration you know you can reaching here you know you can give it to me you know you don't have to be afraid that is something that should have been said this is two seconds of your time it shouldn't have been a smirk it shouldn't have been a laugh because it's not funny you know just having compassion that's it just having compassion the same compassion that police officers are asking from the citizens um, is the same exact compassion that they need to give back it's not funny it's not something that is trivial this is something that is happening on a daily basis and this is something that should be marked as that it shouldn't it shouldn't just be taken lightly Destiny and Santana highlight a lack of trust of the police amongst many in the Milwaukee community due to the actions of both Milwaukee police as well as the police in other cities, and this lack of trust is not unfounded. MPD data from 2007 to 2015 shows that the amount of traffic stops rose from 52,000 stops in 2007 to over 150,000 in 2015. Additionally, a 2011 report from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel found that Milwaukee police were seven times more likely to stop a black resident driver than a white resident driver during the same time period as this dramatic increase in stops. Hispanic drivers, the Journal Sentinel adds, were five times as likely as white drivers to be stopped. Using this data and various personal testimonies, the ACLU of Wisconsin reached a settlement agreement with the city of Milwaukee last summer for a lawsuit filed in February 2017 that alleged racial bias in police practices in Milwaukee. We talked to Ashley Lutheran, crime and breaking news reporter with the Journal Sentinel, for more on this lawsuit, as well as the recent history of the Milwaukee Police Department. My name is Ashley Lutheran. I'm a reporter for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. I cover crime and public safety. 
Currently, I am on a fellowship at Marquette University investigating gun violence in the city of Milwaukee. The ACLU of Wisconsin sued the city of Milwaukee, including the police department, and named um, then-police chief Edward Flynn in this lawsuit in February of 2017. It was focusing on the high volume of traffic and pedestrian stops that the Milwaukee Police Department had been conducting, hundreds of thousands of stops, both traffic and pedestrian stops, um, over the past uh, several years under uh, Chief Flynn's tenure. He was focused primarily on hotspot patrol-based policing. Um, that was filed in February of 2017. It was resolved and settled in the summer of 2018. And I believe that right now um, the city and the ACLU of Wisconsin are still going forward and trying to, you know, they've signed the agreement, but they're tr getting in place the consultant and all the additional monitoring that will be taking place afterward. So the settlement basically is going to include better data collection that the police department will do on who they're stopping and why. One of the components of the settlement is making sure that officers on the ground who are conducting these stops are filling out all the fields of information, including race and ethnicity, reason for the stop, for every single interaction, and that there's more of an accountability measure to make sure that they're doing it, that the department's reporting it out, and actually analyzing those findings so that if they do need to make changes, they know that. It's one thing to collect the information, but if no one's analyzing it sure. or making sure that it's being collected, then you sort of have an issue of, well, why are, what do we do with it? Yeah. How do we know that it's working and trying to ensure you know, accountability? As part of the settlement, there will be an outside consultant who will be auditing the department's uh, data collection and producing annual reports saying how the department is doing collecting that and what... Um, what kind of findings they're having. I should note that the ACLU of Wisconsin did reference um, a 2011 report that the Journal Sentinel did. Um, one of our investigative reporters, Ben Poston, who is now at the LA Times, had done an analysis showing racial disparities in traffic stops. We weren't able to reproduce that report mm -hmm. in subsequent years because of um, the public availability of that data. For a short time period, uh, I want to say six to eight months, it was required to be sent to the state, and um, Ben was able to use that data that was sent to the state by the Milwaukee Police Department to do that analysis. And so going back even a little bit further, mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about the history of the Milwaukee Police Department? Basically, the Milwaukee Police Department, as I said, under Chief Flynn, was a very patrol-oriented uh, department. And that, that wasn't uncommon at that time. Obviously, it's not like Chief Flynn has been retired very long. He's just been gone for about a year. But even in the past couple of years, you're seeing the shift away from hotspot patrol-based policing, place-based policing, to more focus on individuals with the understanding that crime is transient, you know, but criminologists, experts have long said that your crime is driven by a pretty small percentage of the population. And so basically, for a long time, residents have been saying, you know, we're being stopped multiple times for seemingly no reason. We're not doing anything wrong. But they happen to live in an area of high victimization. And that was always Chief Flynn's argument for why he directed the resources he did was that he was focusing in areas of high victimization. And there are studies that show that if you increase police presence, if they're active, then, you know, you see some drops in crime. And he attributed drops in non-fatal shootings, robberies, that sort of thing to that area. You have a new police chief now who's focusing much more on people. When Chief Morales was here speaking at Marquette's campus in the fall, he made uh, a point of saying when he took over as chief, they had about 40 individuals on what they called a high-value target list. These were people who were actively wanted for shootings or other gun offenses, but primarily shootings. And his priority is to go out and if they have open warrants, you know, if there's enough 
probable cause that they have an arrest warrant, they have a criminal complaint issued against them, they should be in custody. That should be a priority of the department. And so in his mind, it is more effective and important to focus on people who are causing the crime Mm -hmm. than to focus on areas in which crime is occurring. And part of that has to do with his personal philosophy. He's much more of a detective investigator based. And it also has to do with things like the ACLU lawsuit. Um, In the settlement, the city, you know, they did not acknowledge any wrongdoing. You know, it very clearly says, you know, we are not saying we violated the U.S. Constitution and illegally searched uh, people. Mm -hmm. Um, But they are agreeing to these improvements in how they're collecting data. And at this point, um, the ACLU for quite quite some time has raised concern about just the high number of stops that Milwaukee was making. Raised concern as in saying, like, this is kind of suspicious, or raised concern as in actively filing lawsuits and, and things like that? They were actively discussing it. I think once you had the ACLU um, in New York City file their lawsuit against the NYPD's program of high-volume stops and searches, stop and frisk, um, there was a lot more attention played nationally to other places that had high volumes of stops. I mean, we're a city of you know, about 600,000 people, and if you're stopping and interacting with 250,000 of them. I mean, that's a lot, that's a lot yeah. of stops. And it, frankly, they're not all different people, right? It's all, they're going to have people who are stopped multiple times. Destiny and Santana's responses have highlighted the influence of media and how their interactions with police officers on their own block can be influenced by the actions of police officers on the other side of the country. With this in mind, we wanted to ask Ashley Lutheran about how she sees her role as a reporter covering cases of police brutality and the challenges that she has doing so. So I think the biggest challenge is there are always more stories to tell than you have the time to tell. Um, I think you're in a shrinking media landscape and you really have to pick and choose what stories you're going to tell, what stories you're going to investigate. I mean, my colleagues have done incredible work holding the Milwaukee Police Department accountable and the department's been the subject of multiple investigations. All of that takes a lot of time. And that's not to discount the fact that there also is daily breaking news that affects residents' life just as much as, you know, uh, you know, a series like Both Sides of the Law or a series like Deaths in Police Custody that my colleague Gina Barton has done. So the biggest challenge is just continually having discussions with both people in the community and people that you work with to make sure, are we covering the right stories, the most important stories? Are we focusing our resources where they need to go? And then I think just generally, I think it's really important to be as upfront where you're getting the information as possible. I think uh, what you're seeing now, especially in Milwaukee after the, uh, the death of Seville Smith and what happened in Sherman Park, but even before that with Dontre Hamilton, I think you're really seeing, it's really important to frame this information as this is what we know right now, and this is who's telling us this information, and allowing readers, just increasing the transparency you have with your readers so that they understand why you're reporting what you're reporting and being more upfront about what you don't know. You know, for example, we asked about the body camera. We asked if a gun was recovered. They refused, you know, the officials refused to answer this. And also judging the credibility of people, you know, people at the scene, if they say they witnessed something, asking them, where exactly were you standing? Does it make sense that they could, could they even see from their vantage point what happened? You know, where, how long were you taking that cell phone video? You know, we've seen some interesting cases um, with the arrest of Demetrius Lowe, for example, on 51st and Capitol. 
the first video that was a bystander video, I mean, it looked awful. And then the police department released the beginning of that call, and you saw Demetrius Lowe beating these officers who were responding to a call for help. Um, I believe it was, it might have been a domestic violence call, but there was an initial call, and I mean, he broke the bones of officers. So it's important to be upfront and and with your readers and increasing transparency. And to me, that's the most important thing is just being transparent with where we're getting the information as much as you can, obviously without compromising sources who may be, you know, that that's a whole nother, <laughs> that's a whole nother issue in, in its own way, but being as transparent as you can about this is what we know now. And this is where we're getting this information from. Ashley talked a little bit about MPD's policing strategy under Chief Flynn and during the years covered in the ACLU lawsuit. These strategies known as hotspot patrol policing or place-based policing or broken windows theory policing, uh, but essentially this method of policing entails putting police resources in area where crime is occurring most often. The strategy is based on a documented phenomena that crime tends to cluster in certain areas, and research from at least 1975 up to 2017 has consistently found a relationship between place and crime. Yeah, and recent research has even found that in most American cities around 50% of crime can be attributed to less than 5% of addresses within the city limits. Thus, since you supposedly know where a majority of crime is taking place, you should put more resources in those areas with higher crime rate. This was Chief Flynn's argument for concentrating police resources in particular areas of the city over others. But as Ashley mentioned, when police resources are concentrated in a certain neighborhood, then it's very easy for police to be suspicious of everyone living and working in that area. This strategy often can alienate local residents who feel attacked just based on where they live or where they work, which can undermine any remaining trust in the police to act in the community's best interest. To learn more about the unintended consequences of place-based policing and dive further into Collins versus Milwaukee, we talked with Jared English, senior field organizer at the ACLU of Wisconsin. I'm just a dude. Um, beyond that, um, I'm a black man in the United States of America, um, with all of that entails. And that's probably the most important thing I am. Um, my name is Jarrett English, and I am um, the so-called uh, senior field organizer for the ACLU of Wisconsin. What that entails is the, the gist would be, I guess, bringing people together. But the point of all of it is bringing people together to get stuff done. And not just stuff done, but things that are going to actually affect and change people's lives. Give your listeners some background on Collins at all versus the city of Milwaukee at all. Mm -hmm. So uh, things like who is involved, um, <clears throat> on what grounds was uh, the city, the police department um, mm -hmm. sued, and, and what was the result? The community had been asking for a federal patterns and practice investigation for literally decades. They didn't get one. Um, there was um, an FBI investigation, I believe, in the late 90s, early 2000s um, that yielded some results, but it didn't do what it needed to do. Um, and so the community, um, outside of um, organizations like the ACLU, had been doing what they could to organize and try to push um, for some type of real accountability and restructuring of the frankly you know racist and and um, very violent tendencies of the milwaukee police department as it was and so all that being the case lots of different things happened 
but um, we decided to file. Like from our perspective, the case was in the works for about 10 years. So long before I got here, I've been at the ACLU about four years now. Our previous executive director, Chris Almady, started to look into some of the disparities that they were seeing and how people were arrested and things like that. And what they found out was that black and brown folks were more likely to be arrested for possession of, of uh, marijuana. And so when they looked at that, they were like, you know what, if this disparity is here, is it anywhere else? And so they started looking into other factors related to police and community interaction, particularly with persons of color. And what they found out was that those disparities did exist. All of that led up to filing the lawsuit, and I believe that was February of 2017. Knowing the level of segregation in the city of Milwaukee, mm-hmm. and then also knowing that the practice of place-based policing was like the practice that mm-hmm. under Flynn at least was used, mm-hmm. I can imagine that both of those things combined just sort of uh, catalyzes one another and, mm-hmm. and makes things worse in some regard. Yes and no. It's like it depends very much on the framework of the folks who are executing the policy. And so, you know... So the police officers themselves. The police officers themselves and also their leadership. In regards to Flynn, he would call it the data-driven policing. Efficient policing, I think he used. Well, potentially. You know, one of the things we found out is that it wasn't also... was not very efficient Mm -hmm. um, in the sense of, you know, them actually solving crimes and things like that. At least that came out in some of the, the DOJ stuff. It was a detriment to them solving crime because what would happen is that people didn't trust them and um, for many reasons. And so if there was an actual real crime committed, they wouldn't tell the police. And that was doubly so in communities uh, like immigrant communities where there might also be um, a fear, even if it was unfounded, that they would endanger their, you know, their residency here. Um, And when we talk about individual officers, to give you an example, Milwaukee itself is roughly 65% persons of color, so it's a majority person of color city. The police force is the opposite. Um, It's about, last I checked, uh, and I'm sure that's changed a little bit um, for a lot of reasons, but it was over 80% white. Um, And then on top of all that, officers had a choice, have a choice, to live outside of the city of Milwaukee limits. Um, so you could potentially be, um, you know, a person in Oconomowoc, don't live here, don't, your kids don't go to school here, whatever else, but you come here, become a police officer here, you know, take the, the very nice paycheck that we give officers, and rightfully so, it's a difficult job, um, and then take that back to a whole different community, you know, and with all of your biases and everything else that might come with that. Um, and that's obviously not to say that everybody who's from outside of Milwaukee um, has serious racial biases, but um, it does become more likely that if you're not exposed to the people in the community that you're policing, that you will not have a deeper understanding of, of what's going on there. Does Collins versus uh, City of Milwaukee say anything about kind of the unintended consequences of, quote, like resource efficient strategies, such as place based <coughs> policing? And will kind of moving to a more person based or suspect based? strategy of policing fundamentally change how police are felt in in let's say like the greater Milwaukee community so the first part is um, the broken windows policing um, tactic was something that was attacked from the start um, and not just you know the the, the complaint that we filed but um, you know there's lots of research 
otherwise suggests that that's not as effective and like for a lot of the reasons that we stated before. Um, and then the second part is talk about, you know, and I haven't heard him directly say that or read anything about suspect-based policing from Chief Morales, but um, that's also problematic in the sense of that you, in some regard, you know, everybody could be a suspect. The challenge is for law enforcement is to engage with the community in a way where things are naturally coming forth and not where you are antagonizing an entire population of people to, you know, be, you know, at your beck and call in regards to whatever, you, you know, enforcement tactic you want to do. It's the part that takes more work. Um, and unfortunately, um, and this is something I'll say personally, um, I don't see that happening to the degree that it's supposed to, um, that it needs to, um, even under Chief Morales. Um, and there has been, I would say, a change from Chief Flynn's administration to Morales, but there's a lot of work to be done. There's a very long way to go. And I think that's the consensus also in the community. The job of the settlement was not, or the complaint, and then, you know, of course, the eventual settlement um, and decree was not to give a framework for criminalizing people at all. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's not the job. The job of the settlement and the job of the ACLU and our coalition partners was to make sure that people's constitutional rights were not being violated just because of what they look like or where they happen to live or where they happen to be traversing. So one key outcome of the lawsuit was or is the consent decree. Mm -hmm. And for some of our listeners, uh, that that's that's a legal term, mm -hmm. right? That's an actual document that has what are the components of the agreement that we both consent to, right? And then is there a is the ACLU in charge of overseeing whether or not the police department uh, follows through on that consent agreement? Mm -hmm. Or is it um, the state or the city or who's in charge of overseeing that? And so to be fair, um, you know, there's a lot of people who don't like me calling it a consent decree. So it's officially called a court ordered settlement. The case is still um, under the jurisdiction of the federal court who has oversight of it. And of course, that's where any potential repercussions or um, changes would happen is that yeah. the parties would go back in front of the judge and one would say, you know, they didn't meet the standard, um, or we would say they didn't meet the standard, you know, please make them meet the standard or, or do something else about it. So there's a lot of people. Um, and so the ACLU obviously is one. So the, the court order settlement is a five-year agreement. Within the settlement, I'm not how much not sure how much you guys have read of it, but um, they have to be within a certain percentage of various parameters at the end of that in order for it to be lifted. And if they don't do that, then they can just... It, it literally can continue indefinitely until they do meet those standards. And uh, in the sense of like in charge of making sure that it, it uh, is executed correctly, obviously the ACLU and our plaintiffs, um, there's a new entity that was created um, called the Community Collaborative Committee that doesn't have direct oversight authority, but they are an official city commission. And of course, they're, um, we can talk about that. They, they came out of some of the work done under the DOJ or with the DOJ draft report. There's obviously the FPC who was a co-defendant in the case, but they're statutorily the oversight entity that has absolute authority over both the police and fire department in Milwaukee. In a lot of ways, at least fiscally, there's the common council. They control all the money and any kind of allocations in that regard. And also the um, settlement um, mandated that there be a court monitor or, or a consultant, um, and that is CJI, so the criminal... Justice Institute, I believe it is, and they are, you know, just so people know, that's where 
uh, the money goes into paying their researchers and their data people to analyze all the, the, the literally terabytes and terabytes of data that are generated by um, all the different systems that MPD uses. Um, and so a lot of the data oversight and procedural training stuff is being overseen um, by the consultant. Um, all the disciplinary things and the changes to standard operating procedure that the settlement mandated are um, those are evaluated and, and put into action by the Fire and Police Commission. The ACLU obviously, you know, uh, monitors all of that. And if there's something we don't agree with or our plaintiffs don't agree with, then that's when we, you know, we set up a consultation between the consultant, the city, and the police department. Um, or if it's serious enough, then we go to the federal court and ask them to, to help us fix it. So would you, is this something, again, getting back to the... The, the purpose of Bridges City and like connecting everyday citizens with mm -hmm. this this type of information, which I think is very useful for for people of Milwaukee to know and to understand. Mm -hmm. But is it something you know where someone can look up the particular agreement between the two sides, mm -hmm. and then if they're and then they have an interaction with a police officer or, or if they're experiencing some type of um, discrimination from the police, it's something where you advise them to then like. Like like the ACLU know like all these people mm -hmm. who are overseeing it like the Fire and Police Commission you mentioned a few times. Um, I don't have a ton of interaction as a community member with them, but is that mm -hmm. something that you would encourage? Oh, absolutely. Listeners to like really like is that who they're bringing their their complaints to at yes. this point to make sure and that so, stuff is followed through on? Um, yeah, and so one of the things that, that came out during the the litigation and um, the research that went into the case is that complaints filed directly with the police department weren't reaching um, who they needed to reach or they just weren't getting filed at all. Um, a big part of the settlement is changing that complaint process. So for instance, once upon a time, uh, say if you were to file a complaint, you'd have to go to the police station, you have to talk to the sergeant, the sergeant hopefully will take your complaint. Um, but before that even happens, you have to have the complaint notarized um, and then you have to get through the phalanx right, of... You have to go to a notary or like have a You have to go to a, a notary and have your complaint notarized. That was the, the former process. Um, and so what, you know, clearly what happened was that people never followed through because, you know, for many reasons, but because there were so many barriers in the way. One of our plaintiffs, her son was unconstitutionally stopped and frisked by MPD and she went to file a complaint. And the, the person, the sergeant, I believe it was, um, who took the complaint basically did everything he could to keep her from filing it. And so she, she didn't file it. She ended up quitting that process. Um, and that was fortunate because she became our plaintiff. But, you know, unfortunately, that was not just like some kind of, you know, rare occurrence that happened all the time. And the consequence of it was that, you know, for instance, Chief Flynn, when he was a chief, would, you know, they would basically brag that, you know, they would have, say, 157, this is a random number, but it would be something like in those lines, complaints out of 600,000 people in Milwaukee. And, you know, they could they could point to them and say that's true, but it's like, well, there's 10 steps between all the other folks and who, you know, who didn't file a complaint to, you know, the ones who actually got through it. Um, and then on top of that, you know, when people see things like that and they inter have interactions like that, they don't trust the process at all and so they don't even bother to file a complaint and one of the things that we found out for instance is that there was a young 
and he was one of many that we've interviewed. Um, but there was a young man who would be coming home from school or he'd go and play basketball or something after school with his friends or whatever. You know, every summer he would say like clockwork, he would get stopped four to five times a week. Um, he didn't have a record or anything like that. And you know, he's just a kid going to school, doing what kids do, going to hang out with his friends, play ball, whatever, and coming home. Um, and so sadly, things like that were a regular occurrence, not just something that was just out of the blue that happened every once in a while. And so the complaint procedure was a, was a big focus of um, the case. One of the challenges that I think anything like this has, um, particularly when it's something as complicated as litigation, is making sure that the community even knows that all this stuff exists. And so uh, one of the things that we're going to be doing moving forward is having community meetings to literally go through the settlement in as concise and clear way as possible so that the most affected people know not only what their rights are, but what the settlement does in regards to that. This idea of trust has come up a lot in the interviews mm-hmm. that we've done, as you can imagine, mm-hmm. um, both on like both sides, so to speak, of you know, mm-hmm. police and community. Like police saying that your community needs to trust us if we're going to be able to work with them. Community saying like, you know, we don't trust you or like yeah. there's reasons, you know, if I'm getting stopped four or five mm-hmm. times a day for just walking home. Have you, are you aware of any kind of success stories, I guess, of cities or major police departments at, you know, the Milwaukee city size level mm-hmm. um, that have, you know, maybe over, maybe over generations, but have taken steps to repair that trust between the police and the community and if so like what what happened in those cases um so i'm aware of a few um but that being the case you know the the steps that they've taken haven't always completely mitigated all these issues um there's probably something i'm not aware of but um from what i am aware you know most of those um those kind of uh, situations are, are very either superficial or they're not far-reaching enough where they can be impactful in the sense of the way the community views the police and, and vice versa. Um, and I think, you know, personally, part of the issue with that is is that it's always, demand is always being put on the community to, you know, come 75, 80% of the way. Um, and then maybe the cops, um, with some goading by an elected official who, you know, might have some interest otherwise, um, getting reelected or whatever else, you know, pushes them to, to do that 10, 25% stepping forward that they do. And like I said, it <clears throat> just could be me and I, I may not be, you know, it's, it's very possible. I could be not aware of everything that's going on in that regard, but in cities the size of Milwaukee and larger, I'm not aware of any, not to say not any, you know, efforts to do it, but any highly successful efforts to um, bring the police and community together in a way where there's equity. Um, And I think that's not stated um, often enough. You know, there's bringing the police and community together. But if you're a community like Milwaukee, where you have a large percentage of people who have felony convictions, you have a large percentage of folks who... Um, live in, in poverty situations, uh, meaning that you know their uh, potential interactions with law enforcement can be much higher. It's an unequal playing field. Because this is Bridges City, we want to leave you with action steps. 
These action steps will help you stay informed about the settlement, agreement, and police-community relations generally in Milwaukee, and to get engaged in some of the efforts to repair them. What I would encourage people to realize is that just because there's a settlement doesn't mean that this is over. Mm. Um, I would encourage people to think of, for example, a lot of the concern people have had about the Milwaukee County Jail. Mm -hmm. The Milwaukee County Jail has been under a consent decree for decades at this point. They have an independent monitor who issues periodic reports and is the responsibility not just of reporters but of the general public to demand to know what's in those reports and to pay attention to them. For people who care about police accountability and government accountability mm -hmm. just generally, I know it's not always glamorous, but paying attention to the Milwaukee Fire and Police Commission is the most important thing you can do. The Fire and Police Commission is among the most powerful, and it is, I think, the oldest civilian oversight commission of fire and police departments in the country. You know, those are regular citizens who are appointed by the mayor, confirmed by the council. They are there to represent you, and they do have extraordinary power. Um, they, I believe, just uh, within the past month, were reviewing the the policies for stop and searches and traffic stops. That's where policy is, is made, mm -hmm. and it's at the Fire and Police Commission. They approve both the fire and the police department's SOPs, their standard operating procedures. They handle their discipline. They help with promotions, recruitment. People often say, we want a more diverse police department, a more diverse fire department, which arguably has a greater diversity issue than the police department does. That's where that all happens. So paying attention to those meetings, they're streamed. Um, if you can't make them, they usually meet at 5.30 on every other Thursday at City Hall. But if you can't go to them in person, you can see their agendas online. You can sign up for the city's e-notify system and get their agendas just emailed to you directly. And you'll, you'll find a lot of things on there. Some people get concerned if officers who have been uh, accused of misconduct um, ultimately are promoted, you know, that's the board that deals with it. So pay attention to the Fire and Police Commission. That would be my advice and call to action. Um, about a week from now, on March 10th, um, at the Wisconsin Black Historical Society, we're going to be gathering um, over 100 people um, to work on um, organizing around the state budget and um, specifically the Joint Finance Committee of the state legislature in um, defunding um, mass incarceration to put that those funds into education. Um, one of the unique things about this is that you know obviously that's um, one of the main goals of us being a part of that coalition. But you know all those same things apply to every level. So there's also a parallel group who's also working with us who's going to be working on the city budget um, and reallocating and making sure that. Um, we're putting money where it's going to make people's lives better. Um, the city budget is not as nearly as big as state budget, obviously, but still pretty big. It's $1.5 billion to $2 billion. Um, $2 million in the city of Milwaukee can go a very, very long way. Ten times that can go much further. And so we're going to be training people not only how to testify in front of the Joint Finance Committee, but how to organize their local community on making changes um, as such for what's best for their community. One of the things that <coughs> excuse me, came out of the last election that we saw and you know our coalition partners also paid attention to was that regardless of political affiliation, regardless of 
political party, uh, we had a record number of education referendums passed across the state. And, you know, it's one of those very few things that I think everybody can agree on that we all want our kids to have the absolute best education opportunities available as possible. And so, you know, that being the case, if we have consensus on that, then let's start taking resources from these things that aren't necessarily benefiting every, anybody, um, particularly children, particularly young folks, um, where, you know, if you're taking $110,000 and, and putting a, a young person in a youth facility, how about spreading that over the course of their, their childhood and their upbringing to make sure that they got all the, the resources and the right educational opportunities and everything that they could possibly need to be a successful human being. You know, it's just time that we do it. And so, like I say, March 10th, it starts at 10 a.m. Um, at the Wisconsin Black Historical Society. We invite everybody. If we get a thousand people, we'll figure out a way. Um, but we'll for sure have, you know, a few hundred there learning how to change um, the future of this state. This brings us to the end of our second episode on police community relations. Look for our third episode to come out in the coming weeks. In that episode, we'll look into other components of the justice system, as well as the role of third-party organizations that work to build trust between the police and the community. We also have some events coming up to add to your calendar. In addition to the ACLU's budget workshop on March 10th, which is at 10 a.m. at the Wisconsin Black Historical Society, there will also be a town hall meeting hosted by the ACLU on the settlement discussed in this episode. If you're wanting to learn more about the settlement or how to get involved, or you just want to meet Jared in person, come to the Wisconsin Black Historical Society Museum on March 27th at 5.30 p.m. to learn all about how the settlement affects you and your rights. Also, Bridge the City is co-hosting a political open mic with New Walkie on what? March 21st at Mobcraft Brewery at 6 p.m. That's right. The topic of the open mic is criminal justice and what that should mean in Milwaukee. So, coincidence, this episode talked all about that. Perfect. We're going to have an event about that. Yeah, so, you should all be there. Now that you're informed, you yes. should be there. And it's going to feature many of the topics we just covered. Not only the topics we covered, but a plethora of guests will be there. Seems like Bridge the City might be a career maker. Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Rebecca Dallet, Office of Violence Prevention Director Reggie Moore, District Attorney John Chisholm, Safe and Sounds Katie Sanders, State Rep Evan Goyke, Mayor Tom Barrett, and yes, the Bridge the City team will all be in attendance for the event. But most importantly, you. We'll be including an open mic session where you can voice your ideas about how to build a more just criminal justice system in Milwaukee on the same stage as our guests. So come out and join us on Thursday, March 21st at Mobcraft Brewery at 6 p.m. For what will be an informative and lively night, you can go to Milwaukee's website to find more information, Eventbrite to register, email us, tell us you're coming and you're excited, tweet at us, Facebook, Instagram, the whole shebang. We'll see you there March 21st. And finally, thank you to our guests. These include Ashley Lutheran with the Journal Sentinel, Jared English with ACLU, community residents and important voices, Destiny and Santana. Uh, we thank you for your time, but also just giving us your insight about police community relations. And we also thank you, the listener, for listening, rating, and subscribing to Bridge the City from wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, and if you haven't done that yet, I'm going to find you, okay? Really, the, these part one and part two have really set the stage for what we're going to get into in part three, the final concluding episode of our Police Community Relationships series. So stay tuned for that in the coming weeks. Follow us on social media for the new episode updates, as well as events and civic engagement opportunities in the city. And as always, let us know how you helped bridge the city. city.